This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Galatians 3, 6 through 9, and 26 through 29. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we get started this evening with uh, the phrase of the Apostles' Creed, the communion of saints, I I first want to give a shout out to Cassie London. Uh, Last week, she was leading us in worship, and right before the communion song, she was leading us into communion, and she shared some verses that had been laid on her heart to read earlier in the service, but she admitted kind of to all of us, like, I was too scared to do it. Like, I chickened out. I knew God wanted me to read these verses, but I just couldn't do it. But it it wouldn't go away, like this feeling that she had that I need to share these scripture verses. And Cassie, I'm really glad that you shared these verses because they're the verses that ended up sticking with me all week, and it's what we just read out of Galatians. As I thought about this idea of the communion of the saints and like where do you go in the Bible to talk about the way that uh, God has knit together a communion that transcends space and time, this passage out of Galatians 3 just kept sticking with me. So thank you, Cassie, for being faithful to what the Spirit prompted you to share. How many of you have done or will admit to of doing one of those uh, ancestry DNA tests? Does anybody like swab? Okay, a few people, right? You like swab your cheek and you send it in, and then they're going to tell you like where in the world you come from. These have become like super popular in the past uh, five or six years as the prices of doing that kind of work has come way down. Why do you think people do that? Anybody, why do you pay the 29 bucks or 99 bucks and send your DNA off to some lab that you've never been to? All right, nobody actually wants to answer the question. I think it's popular because like, we want to know where we come from. We want to know how we're connected to all of the other people that live on this earth and that have gone before us. This family genealogy thing is a hobby that my father and I share. Uh, we have this old briefcase that is full of like notes and photocopies of census records and photographs and marriage certificates and death certificates and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we've traded this hard shell briefcase back and forth. He lives in Georgia. I live here in Oregon. And we kind of trade it back and forth and we like rifle through this research that my father started amassing uh, in the early 1980s. A few months ago or a few years ago, we transitioned from paper to Ancestry.com. And man, that site is nuts. Like, there are millions and millions of people 
who are like uploading family trees and like photographs and all of these documents and they're linking their tree into somebody else's tree. It's like this amazing way of trying to network in with all of your ancestors and everybody else's ancestors. And recently they've added uh, the ability to add your DNA results to this as well and that may find some new matches, even more connections. In my family, we've been able to trace the Campbell line back to my third great-grandfather. He was born in 1828 in South Carolina, and he was killed in the Civil War Battle of Spotsylvania in Virginia. The trail goes cold before him, but our sermon name leads us to believe that at some point we're going to make a jump across the Atlantic Ocean back to Scotland. The clan Campbell is still the largest Scottish clan in the world. We're just not sure exactly when or how we got from Scotland to here via my family line. But it's fascinating, like ancestry stuff, absolutely fascinating. Makes me feel a part of something that's bigger than just myself. I share physical features and a history and like the very coding in my genes with other people that have gone before me. I have a family crest that people like throughout generations have used. Because I'm Scottish, I have a family tartan, like we have our own plaid that like I could wear if I wanted to. I watch like Braveheart and Rob Roy and those are like documentary films for me. I have other Scottish stuff too, I brought it with me. I have a book on Scottish clans and tartans. So if you have any Scottish in your family, like you can, you can see the, uh, the pattern of the tartan and read on it. It's, it's really detailed. I have this uh, book that somebody gave me when I was working at another church. This is the New Testament in Scottish. So if you want to know what the New Testament reads in Scots, I've got it right here. I have, um, I have a record. This is the music of Scotland. I actually play this in my house. It's bagpipes and drums. And I like it. I like it so much that I'm trying to learn how to play the bagpipe. This is a bagpipe canter. See, we just sang that song. Thank you. This is like the bagpipe uh, without the bag. So like you, you use this. Well, it's usually, it's usually like this. And the bag goes here. And I'm plate this part. And you squeeze, and then the sound comes out this part. So I'm, I'm, I'm very Scottish. If you want to see the most Scottish thing about me, you should look at my daughter Riley with her red hair and her fair skin. That's, that's the most Scottish thing I've got. I love my family ancestry. Exploring the lives of our ancestors is a really addictive thing too. When I was preparing for this message, I logged on to my ancestry account so that I could count back how many greats I needed to go to tell you about my third great-grandfather. And I ended up going down this rabbit hole for like 30 minutes that I really didn't have time to do. See, we all want to know where we come from. That's a thing I think we have in common. Where we come from and who we are. And our biblical brothers and sisters, like they weren't much different. They shared that same passion. They loved to include genealogies. You remember like how many of you have done like a read through the Bible kind of plan and you get bogged down a little bit, like you get to the book of Numbers and you're like, here we go. (laughs) There's a lot of names. And even those of you who are scripture readers for the church here, like I feel sorry sometimes when I include something that's got a couple names or place names in it. Because the names are strange and the, the, the syllables, they don't go together in a way that we in a 21st century Western English-speaking context understand. 
But they're in the Bible. And we often skip over them because they're strange. We don't know those people. But if you look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's long lists of people who gave rise to other people and birth to other people and over and over again. In a real physical way, the Bible is trying to connect us to our ancestors, to our brothers and sisters who lived as a part of this community of faith long before we did. I think the very least we can do is take a minute to try to figure out how to pronounce their names. Last week we heard Cameron expand on the way that the church is called to be holy and Catholic. If you weren't here for that one, I'd suggest that you listen to that. What, is, what do we mean when we say holy Catholic church? And this week we're going to explore what the creed means by the phrase communion of saints. Is this a reference to the act of taking communion, which we'll do here in just a few minutes? Is it just an expansion on what holy Catholic church means? Is it something else altogether? What are we expected to do with this little phrase? That's what I'm going to spend the next few minutes hopefully helping us to explore. The Apostles' Creed is written in two different versions, two different languages. Uh, it's, we find the oldest texts in both Latin and Greek. And so because I am a nerd, I went to the Latin and to the Greek to figure out, like, how do they express this in the original language since it wasn't written in English? In the Latin, it's sanctorum communio nem, or sanctorum communio nem. I think that's right. In the Greek, it's agion koinonian. Now, you don't know Latin and Greek, so I'm going to have to translate those things for you. In Latin, the best translation of this phrase is probably something like the holy things or the sacred things. Scholars of the Latin version of the creed usually use, like, intuit this to be a reference to the teachings and practices of the church that were handed down from one generation to the next, like the practice of communion and of baptism and of marriage and all of the other sacraments that the Catholic Church recognizes. In this reading, the phrase communion of saints is kind of a stand-in for the physical act of communion and all of those other things handed down. And this makes some sense, since the phrase right before it is the Holy Catholic Church. So maybe this is a particularization of what we mean by that, the Holy Catholic Church and all of its practices. You can see how the creed might move from this general concept to something a little bit more specific. In Greek, the wording is different. The best translation of this agion koinonion is holy fellowship, or fellowship of the holy ones. I almost thought of titling this sermon Fellowship of the King, but then I decided against it. (laughs) Fellowship of the holy ones. People who study the Greek version of the creed understand this to be a reference not so much to the practices as it is to the people who embody the practices and pass those along. The focus in the Greek is really more on the relationship, not on a specific practice. So maybe communion isn't a reference in the creed to the act of taking the Eucharist, but communing together. When I look at the flow of the creed and sort of how it unfolds, I think that's where I come to understand what communion means in, this, in the version of the creed that we recite. I think it's referring not just to the physical act that we take together, but I think it's referring to us, all of us, doing life together in some way. But I also think that it is a, a lot bigger than that. I would argue that communion of the saints might better be understood as fellowship of the saints, 
so that we can avoid some of the confusion with the word, the, the way that we use the word communion in our church today. But what does this mean, fellowship of the saints? What is fellowship and who is a saint? Well, the fellowship just means the, the, the embodied relationships that we have with one another. Karl Barth, who I've referred to a lot in this series of sermons because he's a brilliant theologian and wrote a wonderful book on the creed, he talks about how this fellowship that we belong to, this fellowship of Jesus, that it's different from all of the other fellowships that we encounter and are involved in in society. It's different than the fellowship of marriage or family or the state that you belong to or your race or your culture or your class or voluntary societies or clubs. It's different than all those fellowships because this fellowship is the only one that is established by God for God. And that makes it set apart and holy. It is a holy fellowship because God calls it into being. I don't feel like a saint most days, though, so I'm not sure if I can be included in this fellowship. We've set a pretty high bar for what a saint is. When we think of saints, we think of people whose conduct is above reproach. We think of people who dedicate their entire like working and waking lives to either helping others or to worshiping God. But that's a way higher bar than the biblical picture of a saint. You see, all who partake in the righteousness of Christ are included in those that we call saints, holy ones. And it's not because we ourselves are holy. We are broken sinners. But a couple weeks ago in a sermon on judgment, I noted that to follow Jesus is to unite ourselves to Jesus and become partakers in his righteousness. When we become partakers in the righteousness of Jesus, we are made holy because Jesus is holy. This means that we're all saints who follow Christ. All who affirm the things that are set forward in this creed are saints and are part of the fellowship of the saints. Even those who might disagree on matters of other stuff related to the church or our common life together. And I think that this is really important. That the fellowship is broad and is held together by Jesus. And that's it. I was speaking yesterday to a group of college students, and I was telling them just a little bit about my own church story. And when I kind of get to my church story eight years ago, I talk about how I got fired from a church and how that this initiated a real time of like um, of sorrow for me and my family. We moved across the country in this time of sorrow, and we found Theophilus Church in this time of sorrow. And this was a couple church buildings ago, and for the first two years, I sat in the back row with my arms folded, and I wouldn't stand to sing, and I wouldn't greet anybody. I didn't want to be in church. I was part of the fellowship, but just barely. The only reason we were going to church at all during that time, because my wife and I certainly didn't want to be there, was because we decided, in God's wisdom, I think, to not saddle our kids with the baggage of the hurt that we were feeling from the church. And dang it, those kids kept asking to go to church every week. Like, we'd done something right, and now we were paying for it. Thank you. And so we landed here, in this community, this part of the fellowship of believers. And when I tell this story to to people, uh, and I, I often do, 
I say, you know, one of the things about this church, other than it became a place where we could call home, it took us several years to heal and to feel like that we could, could talk to people in the church and like we wanted to be there, not just felt obligated because of our holy kids. Like one of the things that I'll tell people is that the beauty of this church is that there will be people in this congregation that you don't agree with on every matter. I think that's wonderful. Some of you probably don't like me. I'm okay with that because we hold Jesus in common. That makes it hard, but it makes it beautiful as well. When we were, uh, when Cameron and I were preparing uh, for this particular series, uh, there was a, a number of books that we looked at, like how, how can we help get ourselves out of our own minds and like just riffing off of what we think the creed means and actually like dive into church history and dive into scholarship and theology around the phrases of the creed. And I said to Cameron, okay, I want to buy this book that just came out, but it's by a guy I really don't like. Like I disagree with him mostly like on the rest of his theological points, but I think that it might be important to actually read his stuff on the creed. And Cameron's like, all right. No, he was more enthusiastic than that. So we bought this book, and we've got like six or seven books, and we kind of like pass these stacks of books back and forth as we're making preparations for the sermon. And I got to tell you that most of the time, like, I would read this guy's comments on the creed, and I'm like, all right, it's fine. A couple times I was like, no, that's not what that means. You're wrong. But it was important for me to be gaining this perspective because this guy loves Jesus and is trying to unpack the very statement of faith that we recite over and over and over again here in our congregation and our community. And because he's my brother in Christ, I deserve to give him a moment to share those reflections with me through his book. So we're all saints who are united through Christ and imparted with his righteousness. The fellowship of the saints makes it impossible for us to do this Christian thing alone. There is no me and Jesus faith in the fellowship of the saints. And the Christian life was never meant to be taken as an isolated individual thing. Go all the way to the first chapter of Genesis, and what do we find there? We find God creates the first human, and it wasn't good enough for that human to exist, just God and that human. God wanted that human to be in fellowship with other who were, others who were like him and for those to be in fellowship and worship to God. We were never meant to do this alone. Hebrews 11, that famous chapter from Hebrews where it lists all of the different like fathers and saints of the faith, holds them up as examples. We stop reading at the end of Hebrews 11. We're like, wow, that's, ins- that's inspirational. But if we go on to Hebrews 12, the first two verses are like where the author of Hebrews was headed with that, that whole illustration. The first two verses says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance to the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. A couple of weeks ago, a Kenyan man, Eliud, 
Kipchoge made history by running a marathon in under two hours. You all saw that, right? Like that was an incredible human endeavor. And he couldn't have done it alone. In fact, one of the things that some people takes a little bit, say takes a little bit away from that is that he didn't do it alone. He was literally surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Sure, there were the people that were cheering in Vienna on the sidelines, but there was a team of 40 runners that swapped out running this flying V in front of him. There were cars projecting a green laser uh, strip right on the ground in front of him so that they could keep pace. It wasn't till the very, very end that all of that peeled off and he crossed the finish line by himself. But he did not run that race alone. There's no way he could have run that race alone. One of the books that I was using to prepare the sermon has this beautiful part in it that I wanted to read to you. This author writes, A belief in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints simultaneously rejects the rugged individualism that has infested American evangelicalism. To be sure, admittance to, the Christ, to Christ's church comes through an individual profession of faith and an individual confession of the truths of the gospel. We must give individual testimony to his transforming effect on our lives. That must not, however, give rise to the notion that we go it alone. We're never alone. The thought that we can walk this Christian life alone carries with it a toxicity and poison that has deeply encumbered the American church. This individualism not only betrays the church, it betrays the gospel. It insinuates that the gospel is about God saving people without pointing to the bigger story of God creating a people. From the Old Testament to the New, the covenants, God's purposes, indeed the very creation of the world, all point to God's design of creating a people. A people that will be made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. By God's grace, we come through faith to Christ and thereby stand united as the whole people of God. When we make this walk of faith about me, we forsake the fullness of the gospel. The gospel does not allow us to boil down its glory to a story about I and me. The story of the gospel encompasses in resplendent unity all the people of God together as one people. The gospel is God's story as he, through Christ, made a people for his pleasure. God's people, therefore, never find themselves alone. Oof. And that's from the guy I don't like. I texted this to a couple of people, and they were like, oh my gosh, that's so good. Who wrote that? And then I texted them the name of who wrote it, and they were like, oh. I was like, I know, right? Guy's speaking truth. That guy is one of my brothers. The fellowship of the saints extends beyond time and space, though, into the eternal and heavenly realms. And this is where things get really weird and get really beautiful. It's one of the most distinctive things about this fellowship as opposed to other fellowships. Our participation in the fellowship of the saints never ends, and the fellowship of the saints can never grow smaller. It can only grow larger. Because when we're united to Christ, we're united to everyone else throughout history and around the globe who was and will be united with Christ. This isn't limited by time. It's not limited by geography. It's what we would call an eschatological reality. We get a glimpse of this in Scripture in a couple of places. 
Remember that parable that Jesus told in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus? This is an interesting parable because it's the only parable in which Jesus actually names the characters. This leads a lot of New Testament scholars to believe that he was talking about real people, maybe describing real events, instead of making up a story for some other teaching purpose. This is a very curious parable. A quick summary, there's this poor man named Lazarus. He sits outside the gates of this really wealthy man's house. That guy throws a feast for himself every day, and Lazarus is lucky to just get some of the scraps that fall from the guy's table. Lazarus dies, and the text says he's carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. He goes to paradise. And shortly after that, the rich man dies, and he's buried. He ends up in Hades. Remember our sermon on hell from a few weeks ago? He looks up from Hades to paradise where he sees Abraham. And he calls out to Abraham for relief. He says, can you just have Lazarus dip his finger in the water and give me a couple drops of water because I am parched down here? And Abraham says, it's not possible. He says, for one, there's this great chasm that has been fixed between where you are and where we are. And the second is, you're getting what you have earned in your life. And so the rich man says, okay, well, can you you at least send Lazarus to go talk to my five brothers? My five brothers are following in the footsteps that I was living, and I'm concerned for them. Could you send Lazarus to go and tell them about this reality? And Abraham again says, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, they have the same Moses and the prophets that Lazarus had and that you had, and if they're not going to believe those things, They're not going to believe it even if I raise a guy from the dead. There's a lot in that story, but what we often overlook, I think, is this dynamic interaction between Abraham and the rich man. They're aware of one another in real time, and they seem to be aware of stuff that's still happening on the earth, the condition of those five brothers. And we don't know exactly what happens when we die, those of us who are believers and even those who are not. Most of us probably think that we go to some, into some sort of like suspended animation thing, as if we're preparing for a long interstellar journey, and that at some point in the future, maybe when Jesus returns, we'll be reanimated or awakened from our cryogenically frozen spiritual state to be able to be judged by Jesus. Maybe that happens, but you won't find it in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible to indicate that once we die, we're kind of frozen in time for a while. In fact, every time that the Bible mentions the state of people who have died, they're very much alive and conscious in some way. In Revelation 6 and Revelation 7, we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, and we see the saints and martyrs in heaven keenly aware of what's going on on earth, crying out to God, when are you going to stop all of this? Praying for those who are on earth. So even when we are physically alone, in a very mystical way, we're still not alone. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, part of the fellowship. What are we invited to do in response to being part of this fellowship that extends beyond this room, beyond this country, beyond this way of practicing the faith, all around the world and throughout all of time and exists in some dynamic way even after we die. 
I have to make, make another little dip into history because it's what I do. This phrase of the creed is actually seems to be a later addition to the creed. The earliest versions of the creed, the old Roman creed, don't have the communion of saints. They go straight from the Holy Catholic Church on to the forgiveness of sins. But around this, in the middle of the 6th century, uh, there was a French bishop and priest, St. Caesarius, Caesarius, Caesarius of Arles. And he was writing some sermons on the creed, much like uh, we've been walking through. And he got to this phrase, the Holy Catholic Church, and he started saying, and the communion of the saints. And it's the first time that that phrase has ever been put in that place in the creed. And I read a couple of papers on why that was, why scholars think that that happened. And during this time in France, in Gaul, this place, this part of uh, Western Europe was the epicenter of the veneration of saints and their relics in Western Christianity. And it seems that that St. Caesarius was trying to make a defense of that practice by appealing to the creed. Now, we don't use the word venerate very much anymore, and certainly in Protestant Christianity, we don't really have a practice called veneration. But the word venerate comes from the Latin, and it simply means to honor or to revere. Showing honor or reverence to those in the faith who have come before us, that's what veneration is. And that's actually a practice that is deeply biblical. Remember the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This often gets reduced to merely obeying them, but I think that's a thin understanding of the the actual commandments, to honor them, to revere them. Now, can we really make the jump from fathers and mothers to all of those who have gone before us in the faith? We don't have to. The Bible does it for us. This is one of the most oft-repeated commandments in the Old and the New Testament. We see it show up in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Luke, Ephesians, and in almost all cases, father and mother have been expanded to mean anybody that has been part of the family of faith that has come before you. Even God starts referring to God's self in relation to Israel's ancestors. He says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we heard in the reading from Galatians, we are united to the whole line of Abraham through our faith in Christ. Those fathers are our fathers as well. In the Bible, to honor or to venerate an ancestor means to imitate the way they live their life. Paul is pretty bold in 1 Corinthians 4, where he tells the Corinthians to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Two chapters after the part we were reading in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews encourages us to remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So Bishop of Arles, St. Caesarea, he seeks to defend this practice of having some sort of physical connection with the saints that have gone before us. These physical items, this physical connection often called relics. Having a relic around to remind you of the noteworthy life the believer lived is also pretty biblical. The Ark of the Covenant contained the budded rod of Aaron. That staff that he threw down and swallowed up all of the other slithering staffs of the Egyptian magicians. The staff that budded to show that God was choosing his tribe, the Levites, to be the priestly order. When Elijah the prophet is taken up into heaven, 
in a whirlwind, his distressed successor, Elisha, picks up his cloak from off the ground, uses it to perform miracles, and puts it on himself as a reminder of the covering that he now has as he picks up this prophetic, this prophetic mantle. In faith, Jesus' cloak was all that the woman afflicted with bleeding needed to touch in order for her to be healed. And as he hung on the cross, Roman soldiers gambled for his clothing. None of these things contain power in and of themselves. What they contain is a connection to a person who, in turn, bore a connection to God, a connection worthy of emulating or trying to attain. So even though we don't call it veneration and we don't call them relics, We practice this kind of embodied honor all of the time in our society. When someone particularly meaningful to us dies, or they're separated us for a long time, we'll often keep an item of theirs to remind us of that person. Not just to remind us of what they did with that item, but the whole of their lives and who they are. I keep this hat. This is my grandfather's hat. I keep this hanging on a little uh, hook on top of my bookshelf in my living room. And every time I look at this hat, I think of my grandfather. My grandfather passed away back in April. I'm 41 years old and got to have one of my grandparents around. He was a hundred and a half. And I look at this hat every time and I'm reminded of my grandfather. And not just what he looked like or the times that he wore that hat. I'm reminded of the man he was. One of the most godly men that I have ever met in person. This is a guy who truly embodied the spirit of Christ. He was loving, he was kind, he was generous, he was firm. He loved Jesus. And when I see that hat, and I pass that thing a dozen times a day, when I see that hat, it reminds me that I need to be like my grandfather because I saw someone who was imaging Christ. I also still talk to him. Do y'all talk to people who aren't here anymore? You probably don't talk to my grandfather, but I do. I don't think it's that uncommon for us to talk to people who've, who've left us, people who've died. I think Christians have a better ground to stand on than most with that particular practice of speaking to deceased relatives. Because if I'm part of the fellowship and my grandfather is part of that fellowship, and we're united together in Christ, that I still maintain a connection with him. When you're going through something particularly rough, do you ask people to pray for you? I do. I especially ask the people who I know are going to pray. Like, it's one thing to ask people to pray for you, right? But when you know that there are those like prayer warriors in your life, people who you know get on their knees and get after it, Those are the people that you really invite to pray for you when you're going through the stuff. My grandmother was one of those. She died several years ago, but she would always pray. And we found after she died, all of these spiral-bound notebooks going back to the early 1960s, and they were prayer journals. And she wrote in there all of the prayer requests that everybody asked her to pray, and she had this little code for updating them. So not only was she praying through this stuff, but she was asking people, like, how's that going? What happened with that? And then she would make a little notation. My friend Elizabeth is another person that prays. I'm very selective about when I ask Elizabeth to pray for things, 
because things happen when she prays. It's like you really want to have something happen, you ask her to pray for it, and things happen. If you knew that somebody who was a prayer warrior in your life was in the very throne room of God, wouldn't you want them praying on your behalf? I know I would. It's like an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. And prayer is something that happens in heaven. We see it again in Revelation, in chapter 8. describes the prayers of the saints mixing with incense and rising in this, uh, this uh, pleasing aroma to God. Right now in paradise, people are praying. They're praying on our behalf. I hope that I'll keep praying for people when I beat them up to paradise. I pray for my daughters and my wife every day, several times throughout the day. I hope that if I die before them, I don't stop praying for them. I think I'll bug God about them until they can join me. These are some of the kinds of practices, remembering our ancestors and the faith who've gone before us, that Caesareus of Arles seemed to be defending when he inserted this phrase, communion of the saints, into the creed. It was important enough that the Western church stuck it right into the creed. So I think that this phrase, communion of saints, is an invitation to participate in practices honoring our ancestors in the faith and one another, worshiping alongside us. You who are here today are already doing a lot of those practices because you showed up. You're fellowshipping together. Again, the, writers of he- the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, let's keep fellowshipping together and not give that up as others do. But maybe there's opportunities for you to expand that fellowship, to lean more into the heavenly reality of this mystical communion that we have with one another. And on the church calendar, there's a great opportunity coming up this week. The day after we go out and dress up and spook other people is a great holiday that the church has celebrated for hundreds of years. November 1st is All Saints Day. This is a day that the church sets apart for remembering those who are part of the fellowship of the communion of the saints that have gone on before us. In our culture, this day is usually eclipsed by the candy and the candy hangover. So go nuts and have fun. But maybe this year, you look at November 1st, that comes around, and you remember those people who are part of the fellowship who are no longer here with us anymore, that aren't physically around. In my house, we have a prayer corner, and I brought a picture of it that we're going to put up on the screen. We have this prayer corner in our house where we invite one another as family members to pray. There's candles on the table there, and we light those each time we're praying for a person. And then every time we see that light, we're reminded to pray for that person. So even as we're busy about our day, we see that candle, and we remember why we lit that candle, and we pray For that person, so that when people ask us to pray for them, we actually do. We also have a little place for us to burn some incense as a way of reminding us that as that incense smoke rises up, so do our prayers. Our prayers rise up as well, and those are our prayers are a pleasing aroma to God. On the wall, you'll see we have icons there, and most of those icons are these visual reminders of who we are and who we want to be, and they're scenes from the biblical narrative. But there's a couple, the bottom two large ones there, that are actually icons of saints. St. Francis of Assisi on the left and St. Julian of Norwich on the right. 
And we're reminded of the lives that they lived when we look at those. And they inspire us to live lives that are similar to that, to imitate them in some of the same ways that they imitated Christ. Now, we don't worship any of these things. That's not what they're there for, the candles, the incense, the icons, or the people depicted in them. Rather, we use them as a way of engaging all of our senses and focusing all of our attention on our worship of God. Because the worship belongs to God. The reverence belongs to God. We can honor the people who are part of the communion that have gone on before us and still mystically exist without worshiping them. We're not very unfamiliar with engaging the physical and spiritual together. The communion of the saints is just another opportunity for us to do that. You see, each week we go from this sermon time to the table behind me, and we come and we take a piece of bread and we tear it off and we dip it into the cup and we chew and we taste, and as we do so, our hearts and our minds are turned to God, and a physical act evokes worship from us. The communion of the saints offers us another opportunity, perhaps, to remember that our faith is a holistic faith that engages all of our senses and our relationships. Not only does it encompass our hearts and minds, everything that we have, all that we are, we give to God in worship. If you're serving communion or leading us in worship tonight, as we take communion, I invite you to come down. And for the rest of us, as we come to the table, I would invite you to linger at the altar. Maybe think about some of those giants of the faith that you have in your life who are at God's side now because you're still united to those people in Christ. If, like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they are aware of what's going on here, then they should be very pleased to see you taking communion and thanking God for them and for their lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for knitting together a fellowship unlike anything that we have ever seen before. Being the author and the establisher of a community that transcends time and space, that unites us with people around the globe and throughout history. Help us to meditate on that this week as we think about this mystery of the communion of the saints. And as we partake in communion tonight, the act, the practice of communion, let it be a reminder to us of all of the people that are part of the Christian community throughout centuries and around the globe who have taken this same act of taking a piece of bread and dipping it into a cup as a way of orienting themselves and being united to you. Help us to ponder how vast and how wide that fellowship is. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.